good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it is uh, August 23rd, QPSC. Uh, we will go into roll call. Trustee Banerjee isn't here yet. Trustee Bouquet. Present. Trustee Charland. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Jensen is not here yet. Trustee Banerjee just walked in. With that, we have a quorum, and we will move into closed session now. To consider the credential report from each of the medical staffs and a couple of items to be discussed under the uh, attorney-client privilege. So, I always forget that part. Thank you. Good to go. All right, everyone, welcome to August 23rd, QPSC. Um, remember, there's not a full board meeting uh, this month. Uh, I'll remind everyone to speak clearly into the microphones as we're being recorded and podcasted. So with that, uh, we will open up uh, with uh, the consent agenda. I move approval of the I consent agenda. Second. And then I'll open it up for dialogue. Any dialogue on the consent agenda? As always, I have a few comments. Um, on the minutes, on page 11, uh, I think Dr. Magalong was speaking about uh, compensation of the president of the medical staff, not the resident of the medical staff. Um, there's only one policy included in the consent agenda packet which is why it's so short, which is nice. Mm -hmm. uh, a question to the chief of staff, chief of staffs and the medical staff office. How does this uh, medical records delinquency policy differ from the others at the, at, the, at the sister institutions? This one's only for Alameda Hospital, correct? Okay. Yes. Um, the, uh, we had a different uh, workflow for notified physicians uh, with their delinquency reports. So this basically just aligned uh, with what is being done at the other two hospitals, especially at Highland Hospital, where the, um, the timeline of uh, warning and uh, is given two weeks before, uh, given on a certain day, and mainly the other issue is how they're notified. So this one is uh, via email, where before we were sending out letters that were signed by the uh, president of the medical staff and the CAO. So this one just generates um, the notification without the uh, signing of the emails, oh, signing of the physical letter and mailing them. So this one changes the procedure of how physicians are notified. And the procedures are functioning on the local resources, I, I presume. That is correct. Okay. So just to remind the, the quality committee as we're moving towards systemness, it's effectively the same uh, delinquency policy for medical records vis-a-vis -vis time notifications and like just the process was different. So that's why and why I wanted to bring it out, why the Alameda Hospital policy actually is not a system level one. It's particular to Alameda Health, uh, Alameda Hospital's resources. But again, the timelines for delinquency are consistent amongst all three of the hospital systems. Any other further comments on um, the consent agenda? This is a new policy for Alameda, but it's a continuing policy for the core. I just do. Um, so I, I in, I, in terms of implementation, 
how, how does that go? Because I was quite impressed. I thought it was a lot longer before that the notification is sent after seven days because we've been talking about patient records and incomplete records and how that um, causes a burden on the system sometimes with the, with, you know. So I was impressed to see that, you know, that it's a seven-day window or a 14-day or a 30-day window. Um, is the implementation, how, how good is that in terms of? Um, this is actually, the windows have been the same. The, the notification of seven days, 14 days, till um, the privileges are suspended. It's been the same. It's just the um, the uh, process of notifying the physician right, right. that changed. But um, it has uh, been, we have been actually uh, doing it for the past few months without, because it hasn't been approved by the board yet. Uh, do all, we're still sending out letters, but they were informing well, so the email to okay. help transition that uh, change. Thank you. Any other questions on the consent agenda? Um, I do make one comment. Tan is not here, and I just wanted to remind him to be consistent. Uh, we previously requested, uh, Dr. J, if you can remind him, that, uh, that there's a wonderfully built flow chart for how policies and procedures flow through. We just wanted to include that with every policy packet just to continue to remind us how that flows through. <coughs> yeah. Or Ron, if we can make that a, fix, a, fix, a fixed item. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to answer if there is any question related to the process right now. Thank you, Dr. Jay. Uh, with that, uh, all in favor of approving the consent in general? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? The motion carries. Item B is complete. Let's go to item C, uh, the chair's report. Two items. Actually, I'm, I'm going to add on a third item. Uh, the first item is the introduction of a new team member. Uh, Dr. Jamaluddin, will you uh, introduce our new team member for us? Yeah, I, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Felicia Tornabini as Associate Chief Medical Officer. Uh, in the previous state, we had uh, three Associate Chief Medical Officer, one for uh, uh, Highland, uh, Dr. Swift, uh, one for Alameda Hospital, Dr. Stingen, and one for uh, San Diego Hospital, Dr. Stephen Rosenthal. Uh, we are uh, going to have only one Associate Chief Medical Officer, and it's going to be myself and Dr. Tomobini, who work at the same level throughout the system in partnering with the uh, nursing uh, leadership, operational leadership, uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, the physician uh, leadership. So uh, uh, Dr. Tomobini is going to be involved very much in operation throughout the three hospitals. As a background, Dr. Tomobini is from California. She is a graduate of UCSD. Uh, in uh, pre uh, uh, before uh, college and, and postgraduate uh, education in medicine, she has uh, specialized in family medicine at uh, Contra Costa, and she uh, stayed at Contra Costa until she uh, moved to to Alameda Health System. She ascended up the ranks as a family uh, f uh, medicine physician and as an advocate uh, for uh, for patient safety and quality and for immunity disparity in healthcare. Uh, she embraces the same values and the same mission and vision as Alameda Health System, so I really welcome her. The process of uh, recruitment uh, involved uh, uh, in a number of uh, people has taken about 10 months uh, right now, uh, and uh, we are very uh, lucky that she decided to join us. 
she has also been involved in the EPIC implementation in Contra Costa, and she brings with her a lot of expertise and knowledge uh, in operation. Thank you. I just want to say it's an absolute honor to have been selected for this position. I'm so excited to, to start here. I've had a relationship through my family with Alameda Health System. Um, one, of my, one of my brothers actually trained here, did his surgical internship year here. My brother-in-law went through the OMFS residency here. Um, a less positive note, but um, uh, it was a personal experience. My, my husband was hospitalized here in 2014, so I've been here as a family member of a patient, and uh, I live one mile away. So it seems uh, it was inevitable in my mind that someday I would get to work here, and indeed I'm here. So I can't wait. I'm passionate about uh, patient safety, quality, and um, I and just uh, in the safety net setting. I can't wait to get off the ground running. Mm -hmm. right. Welcome. Welcome. Okay. We've Thank all you. been very much looking forward to. Thank you. So, welcome. Um, with that item, uh, now item one, uh, uh, I uh, attached an article again for our review for our, for our own uh, journal club. This this is an oldie but goodie. It was published in 2004, and it's, uh, I'm, 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 I'm uh, going back on this theme that we've been discussing. The, the title of the article is The New Consensus Favoring the Institute of Medicine's Definition of Quality. Uh, as our readouts, you know, we've been talking about this, this concept of steep uh, safety, timeliness, efficiency, effectiveness, equitable, and uh, patient-centeredness. And um, this this article, which came out three years after that 2001 article, uh, the CASM article, mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, uh, helps to, I hope, consolidate some of our dialogues on this. So I'll open the floor to any of the trustees to make any comment on the article. I, I really appreciate this. Um, I was somewhat stunned by the date. Um, it feels like, uh, shouldn't we be further apart in some yes. of these things? So um, I, I just want to acknowledge that I thought this was very compelling and very welcomed. Um, and it would be great for us to leverage this as a um, foundational uh, template to adopt uh, the steep uh, ideas that we had discussed in our last meeting. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Still, and I do feel that you know, reading the still far to go section, that that's so much of it is still relevant today, right? Like it's been that years, and it still is, and that having really throughout the system having a consistent idea of what quality means is that that kind of conversation is something because, like you said, equity means different things to different people, quality means different things to different people, so just having shared meaning around that is so important. It's a continuous conversation in many. Exactly. Um, I, I would like to, I'm always from the Cliff Notes version, so I'm going to read uh, from page 24 of the article, just for everyone. Um, and and uh, it leads in from a basic idea, 10 basic rules, and here's the basic idea. First, uh, with, with these are these steep. First, patients should not be harmed by the care that is intended, intended to help them. That's safe. Care should be based on sound scientific knowledge. That's effective. Care should be responsive to individual preferences, needs, and values, patient-centered. Unnecessary waits and harmful delays should be reduced. That's timeliness. Care shouldn't be wasteful. That's efficient. 
and it shouldn't vary in quality because of patient characteristics. That's equitable. And, and it goes on to say, for most people, steep is where defining quality begins. And I think this is the journey, uh, which is sort of one of the reasons I brought this out. This article was written in 2004. Yeah. And uh, better to start our journey uh, yeah. now and not. Uh, from these uh, six elements, the chasm authors, uh, including Dr. Don Berwick, created 10 basic rules of healthcare, calling them the guides to the redesign of our current system, each rule reflecting a steep standard. So uh, this is uh, page 24. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, page 24 of the packet to 25. First, care based on continuous healing relationships. Second, customization based on patient needs and values. Third, the patient as the source of control. Fourth, shared knowledge and the free flow of information. Fifth, evidence-based decision-making. Sixth, safety as a system property. Safety as a system property. Seven, the need for transparency. Eight, anticipation needs. Nine, continuous decrease in waste. And 10, cooperation among clinicians. Cooperation among clinicians. So with that, I will kind of close out our discussion. Keep this in your finals. I hope this will be a good discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a follow-up. Follow um, I want to bring before uh, probably this committee first, but um, to achieve this, kind of uh, you know, foundational set of principles and ideals, I firmly believe we need to begin looking at some of the more uh, progressive and modern uh, 21st century applications that would push out to all staff on a regular basis micro-learning lessons on each of these constructs. And there are tools to do that. So. Uh, uh, Based on my work life, I'm familiar with a couple of uh, applications that are used through the phone. So all staff would get possibly once a week, once a month, depending on how you want to program this. But they would receive that there is a small one-minute video that talks about any one of these concepts. And we need to step into that world if we're going to have this kind of mindset from all of the folks in this room to the frontline workers who greet patients in the ER or greet patients in our uh, wellness clinics. And there is no way to do that simply by waiting for training, simply by waiting for a memo to go out. Um, I, I really have this personal agenda to bring this kind of uh, modern approach to pushing out knowledge and um, consistency of practice in the system. And we can do that using some of these platforms. They exist and they are utilized in places where they make widgets, let alone where they heal lives. So um, I, I really appreciate the attention to these uh, very important principles. I'm more concerned now, how do we bring them to life? How do we make this practical and tactical and strategic enough that we really do see a change so that when we begin to look at some of our performance scores, there's evidence that all of our staff are really aligned with these ideals? Dr. Jack. Uh, thank you, Trustee Hernandez. Dr. Okay, Mike. Sorry. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Trustee Hernandez. Uh, and you are uh, you know, absolutely right uh, about uh, using the 
at the current uh, like tools mm -hmm. in terms of a continuous education rather than being in a PowerPoint class on a quarterly or, or semi-annual basis. So this is a discussion that we've been having with our VP of Quality, Tanvir, and uh, clinical education, uh, and especially you know, with EPIC coming on board, because uh, we might be doing something today that we have to be stopped doing it, and we have tomorrow or in a few hours change. Mm -hmm. So we're looking into all, um, all these tools. I mean, certainly EPIC is quite advanced in this. Mm -hmm. In healthcare, we are very variable. We are not as advanced as, as, uh, as other, other industries. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are certainly uh, looking. And our simulation uh, center has been like a great uh, area where we learn together uh, also in, in different contexts how to function as teams. Um, it's interesting what you bring up uh, those tools because I personally use these tools. Uh, uh, you know, uh, before doing the procedure, I like sometimes to have a refresher, and I found these are available like in 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 in, in several contexts, and they are like really approved. So we are going to take your advice very very seriously and see how we can uh, systemize it. Uh, you know, at, in various in various uh, area. I can tell you that. Uh, you know, we have, uh, like the ED physicians really are very advanced in this. I actually teach and, and develop these tools, the ED physicians, whether it is in ultrasound or in certain procedures. They are like leaders here in Highland in doing those. And uh, the hospitalist uh, physicians are getting on board in, in developing these tools. Mm -hmm. We want really to partner with, uh, with nursing and with uh, other disciplines to have, uh, you know, this, this approach towards continuous learning. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I know that there's so much going on with the EPIC implementation and all of that, and there's already people are stretched, but I know that you used to have those grand rounds too, and then also in your team-based education. Remember, Jean, who uh, was it? Do you still have those, those, you know, those evening, uh, was it lunch and lunch sessions or grand rounds? Uh, um, a whole series that those were phenomenal of learning, of having those. I know it takes a lot to put those together and have, have a schedule of speakers, but... Uh, there's definitely, so there's a number of their grand rounds in each of the departments, and then um, we're also doing, like, for instance, the wellness grand rounds um, for, for, for the entire system. But yeah, each department does the grand rounds. It involves a lot of, um, you know, multidisciplinary work. Uh, so, those are definitely still so that happens on a regular basis, or is that okay? But to connect the dots between the message coming from uh, Dr. Bouquet and Trustee Fernandez is uh, to uh, take those principles and uh, like uh, make them as part of the curriculum as we move forward. Mm -hmm. How does it really align with our true north metrics and our own? I mean, fully agreed. I think step one, which is why I keep bringing it up, I think step one is to bring this language into the vernacular, yeah. the things that we discuss. Just analyzing. Yeah. Analyzing what the word steep, what yeah. steep means, and I, I think that's happening. I know Dr. Baden has done that in the department. We've done it in our division. I, I know uh, Jean has had many of these discussions in, in, the, in, in the emergency department context, and maybe our colleagues over at, uh, throughout the entire organization are starting to do this at the QRC level. Uh, but I think uh, this this is a big cultural shift, and I think it starts with, with, with embedding it into our language. So we'll continue saying steep. Mm -hmm.
around here for it quite some time. It needs to be institutionalized right. because right. no culture change is going to occur right. without it first being institutionalized. Mm -hmm. So yes, you've got to work towards that, whether it's through some sort of electronic method or, or through ongoing training and ongoing kind of um, educational sessions. It's all of the above. I want to just emphasize yeah, that, above, that yeah. um, uh, just because everyone in the uh, uh, entire system receives a push alert and a small lesson on their phone one day, that is not enough. It's got to be reinforced in everything yep. that we're doing. I'm simply asking that we look at yep. the investment in that kind of approach because I think we need to catch up with what other sectors are doing first. Second, I think there's an urgency to the kind of safety issues that we want to see addressed or patient satisfaction issues that we want to address. And it, I, I just want to say that there are solutions to that. And I think they are very complementary to a lot of the things that we're talking about. And um, it would speed up our process of, of just engaging. Totally agree. Could be part of one of your innovation grants but, that yeah. you can have someone but, build yeah. something that's so customized. Yeah. Well, if Rachel, uh, the Institute of Health Improvement has a number of these tools that many members I know in the Department of Medicine have taken those trainings and are available, readily available. It's IHI, you know, you yeah. can have an application and learn about all these tools. But I know that when Captain and I attended the conference this past year along with David Tian, and we're going to send send some more folks this year to just try to train as many people as we can um, and continue we, when folks come back we ask them to present in our department meeting to try to disseminate the knowledge learned so we're going to try to continue that let's send a nurse with them also a nurse or two with them we had several nurses around last year from our quality team and because it's not here, maybe we should give this as an assignment to Dr. Hussein. It's also uh, it's a GME requirement now for all, all residents in training to have sort of quality improvement projects. Mm -hmm. And so um, Ted Beer has actually uh, done a lot to, to, to help sort of crystallize uh, the training in the internal medicine department. And next year he's going to do the same thing in the emergency medicine department for the junior residents to help. Uh, to help focus them on sort of quality metrics and uh, the right sort of conversation. Nice. Yeah. Very good. Excellent. So uh, uh, the, my next item uh, was meant just to be short. Uh, it, it's uh, although it has a formidable title, it's it's called forecasting our year in QPSC. Mm -hmm. I, 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 a few sessions ago, we, we had a report, and uh, Trustee Hernandez made comment that she would like to know that this was coming before it was coming, which just was perfect, perfectly apropos. I'll tell you that Dr. Jang and I have sat down in a while, and Dr. J actually already had a grid of, of kind of the cadence of, of how reports do. So the SBUs, we, we really hear from three SB. For three S three SBUs. They come every every three months. Um, so uh, that's sort of the cadence. What what I hope to have for us available at the next meeting is actually the year's forecasted calendar with a little bit of wiggle room in there. And I, I would like to bring in the discussion about the the the, the quality uh, and safety reports and. Uh, um, uh, that, that, that happen now coming every month. I think that maybe that cadence is a little too quickly. Um, Darshan, can you, can you, or Odin? 
So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe uh, I can speak with uh, uh, about the cadence for that. Should that be about every three months? Because it's been we've had it yeah. three months in a row. So so uh, the data has a little bit of uh, lag time of co of uh, of being collected. So uh, what. Uh, we try to do, it's actually four SBU, but two SBU are reporting in the Together. same time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which are the post-acute and, uh, and uh, behavioral health. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, this will allow us to look at the last quarter. So like today, we are in August. I know that July is done and the data is in, but some data might lag, like the patient experience. So we look at the last quarter of calendar year uh, 2000. Uh, uh, 18 or fourth quarter or fis fiscal year 2000. Fiscal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we look at uh, you know uh, April, May, and June, mm -hmm. and we compare it to the four quarters before. So we're trying to keep this cadence. So next months when we are entering, and it is going to be hazel. I think it is post-acute or ambulatory. Next, it will be ambulatory. So we will uh, we will look also at the last finished quarter and we'll see the trend. And we'll provide uh, you know as much data as we have. Like some of the incidences happened in July. Uh, so we don't want the board. Uh, we don't want the board, the board to wait to learn about these things. Actually, we like the board to know even before anything about any such events. Uh, but uh, but as far as the data in general, uh, you know, quarterly uh, look at them is is is. For safety and regulatory, by For SBU, I, I, I agree with the cadence of the SBUs. I'm just wondering about the the cadence of the safety and regulatory reports. Oh, it's a quality and safety committee reports. And, yeah, yeah. Quality and yeah. safety committee. So yeah, it's been uh, presented here monthly. Yeah. Right. And, and I guess, I, guess uh, I mean, the formal reports from Darshan and, and Adrian, how the, the, that, that came out as the safety and quality report, yeah. safety and regulatory affairs report, which was included in the closed session packet. So are you, are you suggesting that we scale it back? I, I'm, I'm raising the question to the team. Do they feel that that needs to be presented on a monthly basis, or do we need to see a couple of data points in between? Because it's coming on a monthly basis. Mm. I'm just raising the question. Mm. I, I'm really... I'm, I'm not married one way or the other. You know, in the, if, if, uh, if I can table this to have the team available just to have a fair answer, okay. to see from their end in terms of the data flow and interpretation and action on the data, okay. so okay. we can get back to you. That's perfectly fine. That's that just one of, that, that, that would be one of the regularly, regularly occurring items, and that's what I'm trying to put on the, our, our calendar cadence, mm -hmm. uh, trying to determine that, so you know. And then, of course, uh, in that calendar, which Dr. Jay and I will build, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it forth at the next meeting. We'll give a little bit of wiggle room for ad hoc reports, if you will. Um, I know that there's a report brewing on translation services, which would, I think would be a very good report to come through to us. We're, we're still building that report. So that's all I wanted from this forecasting our year kind of discussion. Of course, we need to have discussion with, with council about what, what items might need to come here as well. So we, as we can forecast together, I think it would give us a better better view forward, yeah. and that's all that's about. With that, well, we will close out um, this agenda item, and we will now move to the Chief of Staff reports. I'll make note that the Chief of Staff reports, they all gave a written report, but it was actually only included in the closed session packet. Uh, it should have also been in the open session packet. Uh, so for, for, for the board uh, trustees, you'll have to actually open up your, your closed session packet to look at, to look at the Chief of Staff reports. Yep. Um, dealer's choice. <laughs>
I'll go first. Um, actually, my report is not anywhere because uh, we just had our MEC meeting uh, on Tuesday. So happened um, the calendar falls that out. So we did not get a chance to put in uh, our uh, report into the agenda before the Friday deadline. But uh, as far as the credentialing privilege, uh, we eagerly welcome um, Dr. Torbun uh, to be a new uh, ACMO. And our MEC uh, look forward to working with her and to feel to uh, get, uh, fill the uh, leadership uh, role at San Andrew Hospital. And as to uh, item B, uh, professional service and contracting, uh, we uh, had some discussion regarding the availability of uh, certain IR procedure in uh, San Andrew Hospital, uh, mainly uh, for uh, paracentesis, a number of puncture and fluorosynthesis. And uh, we are working with the uh, radiology uh, department as far as trying to get those service available. Also, I think that Dr. Jamaldin also has some uh, solution coming up. And uh, I will report on that um, on uh, us um, in our next meeting. And as far as contracting, uh, the chair uh, uh, contract are in place. Uh, the only uh, caveat is that uh, the chair did not uh, get reimbursed uh, for the work they done uh, uh, January of 2018 through uh, June of 2018. Mm. And uh, uh, quality and uh, outcome, uh, I had um, um, stated in uh, my pre previous uh, meeting, I'm going to try to rotate between uh, our three departments. So um, this uh, month, I'm going to focus on the emergency department. Uh, our uh, most uh, ED uh, scorecard from um, uh, in August was reviewed, and so far the average volume has is been uh, uh, lower than usual. We uh, around this summer month we usually see around 70 to 80 uh, patients a day, and uh, so far we are averaging about 65 uh, patients per day, and we are. Uh, uh, contacting, uh, uh, we, we're, we're discussing with the chair and uh, various leadership uh, about the reason for decreasing volume, uh, which is not necessarily that. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, low ED volume means that people are, uh, have uh, other revenues of uh, assets to care. And uh, then uh, we also reviewed the ED to uh, arrival to departure time. In April, it was 462. So it takes about, uh, what would that be? About seven hours uh, for inpatient admission. It takes about seven hours for patient to arrive to the ED until they get a bed uh, in, the, um, in, in the floor. In May, we did a little bit better. It was from, it went from 462 to 4, 412. So there's a 50 minutes decrease. Mm -hmm. But that's still a way about the benchmark. Our benchmark is 280 minutes. So we want uh, the patient from arrival to uh, the ED to get up to uh, an inpatient bed uh, within uh, two, uh, that 280. That'll be a little bit 
four, five, a little bit, you know, four, four hours and 40 minutes. Okay. And uh, so that's a go working tour. And as far as um, uh, EB admission decision time to departure, basically uh, the time we decided to admit a patient to the time they actually depart from the uh, ED is 205. That's, you know, as you see, that's part of the delays right there. And it may improve to uh, 154. Uh, again, that's uh, about the benchmark 102 that we are aiming for. And also we review our most current uh, antibiotic gram uh, for uh, treatment, uh, mostly for uh, uh, gram-negative uh, bacteria. And that's uh, going to uh, item D, uh, other issue. Uh, we uh, had uh, Dr. Vettorino uh, presented uh, about uh, surgical resident rotating through a community hospital. Remind the, the board who Dr. Vettorino is. Oh, she, she's the uh, chair of uh, surgery at uh, Hyden, uh, at the, um, here at, uh, at the core. And uh, he has this um, proposal of rotating uh, uh, surgical residents through the community-based uh, uh, hospital to give them exposure uh, how uh, community hospital uh, operate, how they uh, uh, perform surgery. And that was uh, welcome. There's still a detail to be worked out, but that's welcome by the uh, both the surgery department and the MEC members. And we also had a presentation from uh, Dr. Barry Samet, the chair of uh, emergency medicine for the whole three campus, about ED resident uh, moonlighting uh, in the uh, community, uh, San Angelo Hospital. And uh, uh, we had an uh, understanding about uh, the scope and the, uh, of the uh, service and moonlighting, uh, how is that going to work. And uh, also, uh, going to other issue, we uh, still uh, having a tracer at, at the San Angelo Hospital regarding uh, the upcoming uh, Joint Commission uh, visit, which is expected in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. And we also preparing this uh, list, uh, top 10 list, uh, to be disseminated amongst the uh, medical staff regarding uh, the best practice, what to do and what not to do and hopefully uh, get us uh, through the Joint Commission survey. And I think uh, that's uh, my report. Thank you for your report. Trustees, questions for Dr. Chu? Yeah, you told me about the Joint Commission survey. I would have asked you that. How, how is the construction affecting flow and other things at the hospital? So far, uh, of course, uh, that took away uh, the third floor from the hospital. Uh, luckily, our volume has, uh, our census has not been overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So that, as far as bed number availability are concerned, we not impacted much by that. Okay. And uh, as I uh, understand, um, maybe Dr. Uh, Luis uh, Fonseca has a better insight. So far, the construction has been going fairly smooth, and the noise and disruption to uh, patient care has been minimal. Thank you. Uh, as standard work, do you have any further comments, concerns, or suggestions to help us in our pursuit of quality at San Diego? Uh, uh, so far, uh, things are going well, and uh, no further uh, requests at this time. Wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
that mega I'm reacting. Uh, the uh, Alameda Hospital MEC did not have a full meeting uh, this month. Um, we did meet for the credentialing portion of the of today, um, but we had some preliminary discussions as well uh, with regards to the um, surgical residents rotating at the Alameda Hospital. I've uh, met and discussed this with Dr. Victorino, and um, we're looking forward to um, you know, a formal. Uh, uh, discussion uh, on our next MEC. Uh, we I expressed uh, express Dr. Victorino our, our you know that we uh, are we are in in essence we are not opposed to having the residents at Alameda Hospital. What we want is basically just um, uh, some policies uh, that will come out that will delineate the uh, specific roles and functions of the residents as they come out to. I will need the hospital so we meet joint commission requirements. Because traditionally, like um, San Leandro, we have not had any residents rotating at our community hospital. New for both of you. New for both of us. Any other? Thank you. Any other comments, Dr. Um Oh, um, yeah. Just with regards to what we discussed earlier with um, systemizing uh, the the uh, the safety and, and quality. Um, Within the system, I, I know we would also would like to be able to have that also at Alameda in terms of sending our physician and nursing leadership to trainings just like what you have here at the core campus. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. True made comment about IR services at San Leandro. Can you talk to me about IR, talk to us about IR services at Alameda? So at Alameda Hospital, for patients needing IR services, we uh, send them to Highland for IR. Some cases, we they come over at Highland and they go back same day mm -hmm. in Alameda. Uh, there are other cases where you know there's, it is not available at that time the timeliness, timeliness of the procedure. So we have to send them out of the system. Okay. Do you have any further comments, concerns, or suggestions with regard to our pursuit of quality at Alameda Hospital? No, that was it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for your report. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hearn. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, in addition to the, uh, the discussion of credentials and privileges during the closed session there, just a couple things of note. Um, uh, the MEC had uh, fairly extensive discussion about uh, um, throughput issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we have been in a very challenging time, probably since July 1st, maybe? July 1st, um, where uh, there's been a confluence of factors, um, and it's clearly multifactorial, but the, um, the impact, uh, the impaction point of patients uh, being the census is incredibly high here um, at Highland. Um, we have had the, in, that's the inpatient census. Interestingly enough, the ED census has also gone down some, but the overall length of stay in the emergency department is actually up. So total occupancy is higher because patients are staying in the emergency department longer waiting for beds to go upstairs. So I'm sure you remember about a year ago, a year and a half ago, we created this uh, surge yeah. process um, that defined different levels based on the emergency department overcrowding score, the NEDOC score. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, they, we have a number of patients upstairs that are particular uh, placement challenges, I think that'd be fair to say, uh, 
Rachel, the number is somewhere between sort of 20 and 35 that, that have challenging placement issues. That's accurate. Yeah. So um, literally patients who have no medical issues any, any further, and they're, they're purely administrative days, sitting upstairs waiting to go somewhere else, um, taking up an inpatient acute hospital bed. Um, at the same time, at any when we are in a the search red, we can have 20, 25. Last week at one point we had 27 admits waiting to go upstairs, um, which brings us brings a number of quality issues uh, um, on board. And I think that um, we are we are in a we're at sort of a transition point now. And what's really what's, what's cool is that we sort of revitalized the throughput committee. Um, sorry, I can't see as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dr. Baden actually, her department represents 80 percent uh, of the inpatient beds, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so I think that we've, um, you know, under um, Luis Fonseca, the, the throughput committee has been revitalized, and now there are eight different work groups, eight or ten. Uh, quite a few, yeah. yeah, at least uh, ten. At least ten work groups uh, to sort of address a number of different topics, placement issues, turnaround times, uh, throughput, other sort of throughput subtopics, um, and it's great that that committee is, is up and running. It is that I think I think it's fair to say that that's a long-term solution, um, and we still have some you know some short-term issues. Luckily, this week, for whatever reason. Um, we are actually doing relatively well, I'd say, um, which, I, which, we're, which I'm very excited about. It worked last night, and, and it, it was very smooth. It was, uh, we got people transferred. I know that we've opened up more beds at Alameda Hospital, I think. Um, so are you aware of it? It's not, it's not by luck. Not by luck. It's fantastic. And Mr. Fonseca will tell us about that. Very, very excited that this week is excellent. Last week, I fielded a number of direct calls from my colleagues who were terrified um, about sort of the, the state of the department. Um, in the IPPC, we actually had a number of uh, quality concerns, uh, cases uh, that were directly caused uh, by the um, the over uh, uh, the overabundance of patients waiting to go upstairs. Um, yes. Just a uh, clarifying question: uh, Was there a common uh, presentation in the? Emergency department that all of these folks are. No, it's not like a flu season where they're uh -huh. the of many of the same things. Uh -huh. It's uh, it's mostly what we call a, like a, a back end issue where it is that it's mm, discharges, placement issues, and other things in terms of throughput um, because literally our ED volume is slightly down. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not it's not a, not a common thing, but because we've been limited on the number of beds to actually see active patients, we have had. A couple of cases, and I know this is open session, so we won't put any details. But IPPC discussed two very specific cases that uh, that were quality concerns um, because patients literally could not get into a bed in the ED, um, and uh, so so very concerning. And when uh, when we reach those levels, it is clearly a patient safety issue. Absolutely. Um, so. Okay, so we spent a lot of time at MEC talking about that in close session. So we're very excited that the long-term process is sort of up and up and running, uh, and that committee meets every two weeks, two weeks uh, with a number of subgroups to, to, to keep working on that. So um, 
so we're looking forward to you know continuing to address that that process. Um, so is there anything else I'd like to add? I would say that there hasn't been one. The acuity of patients that we're admitting to the hospital is higher. Like we just we have really sick patients, and I think you know that it's reflected. Um, and so I think you know it, it's our length of stay hasn't hasn't gone up tremendously, but I will tell you the cases are more complex than they were a year ago, and, and I don't think many of us thought that was possible. Um, so for whatever reason, the acuity has gone up, and I think. Our overall census on medicine, which is normally, you know, a year ago would have been 85, has been hovering above 100. In the last two days, it's back down to 85, 84. So, um, so suddenly we're back down, but it, you know, for the last six months, it's been really up there. And, and as Louis will allude to in his nicely written report, the, the case mix index scores are actually going up, which is actually a good thing because it sort of justifies the hard work that this organization has done, and but not really measured ourselves to do it so far. So I think I think that's a good thing and we're kind of going through some of those pains. Dr. J? You know, I just want to comment about uh, particularly you know, July was uh, busy throughout the East Bay area. Mm -hmm. All hospital beds at Kaiser, at uh, Sutter, at Eden were really quite occupied. We had patients who needed to repatriate and there were no uh, no beds in those, in those hospitals. Um, uh, as for the patients who are difficult to place, we have metrics around that. But it becomes a focus of attention when we are congested. Our metrics shows that we are much better than we were two years ago and even one year ago. But our attention to the problem uh, brings it as, as an important problem. I mean, as a physician, we have a patient who needs immersion bed and have a patient who I cannot place becomes more of a pain for me. Uh, but uh, Dr. Uh, I mean, Ms. Sheila Lizlo, the VP, is looking at this and is tracking it in terms of uh, like uh, building uh, processes and relationships with the Alliance and trying to move these patients and with other entities, trying to move this difficult to, to move patients outside. And we recently uh, started a contract uh, I don't know the name of the organization where they will give us five beds for our patients who need uh, intravenous antibiotic therapy. These were patients who are intravenous drug abusers on ant antibiotics. You cannot put them in a shelter or in other organs. SNF does not take them. So we have five beds for those. And we are looking also into various areas to take care of the back end. But also our operational efficiency, we are addressing it. And those operational efficiencies are related to making decisions on weekend and, uh, and uh, having services after hours and weekend in order to, to so we're looking at various aspects. I leave to Luis to, to, to comment in terms of the numbers, you know, that we are seeing now. I, I think this is an important problem and in, in, in wrapping this back around to our concept of quality that we're all engaging our steep quality. This, there's, there's issues of safety which have been arisen, timeliness certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, one could argue that this is not effective or efficient. It actually might be equitable in that all patients can't get up <laughs> uh, and it's certainly not patient-centered. So, so uh, we're hitting across many of the, 
this is a this is a wonderful steep problem uh, for which I think Luis is going to help us in his dissection of, of what, what what we've done to make us better at least this last week in, in leveraging the pleasant. So I just want to say so the board can recognize we owe a debt of gratitude the last three and a half weeks to a, a small but fierce group of nursing leaders who have really guided us through these surges and have sort of as a team taken on our command center nonstop. It's it's Lori Feudel, um and Shereen Cronin and probably most importantly Teresa Cooper. They have really stepped up in a way that I think um, it, it's almost superhuman of them. <laughs> they've owned a process which, which by definition wasn't necessarily they each are directors of nursing within their own units, but they, in addition to those duties, they have taken on this this this, this the process uh, really to sort of help stabilize the the, the, the system in the long term view of, 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 of doing the right thing. And I think it's been an amazing effort on, uh, on their part. Louise, could you officially let them know that the board thanks them for, for their efforts in these regards? Absolutely. That, that, that would be great. Trustee Jensen. Thank you. Um, Mike. I think, well, my mic's not. Okay. Just, no, it wasn't. So it's late. Um, I guess my, um, I appreciate what Dr. Jamalabin responded and, and um, Dr. Bowden. The, the thing that was initially brought up by Dr. Herner was the um, discharges, the discharges and the, the fact that rooms or beds are not available because patients don't be discharged. And I didn't hear any response about that situation other than operational efficiencies, which would suggest that discharges are happening quickly and efficiently. So I, I just want to follow up on that and get see where we are and where we're going with um, effective and efficient discharges providing the patients with the community and, and support and um, follow-up that they need. And what's holding it up and what do we need to do? So, do you want me to come? Is, 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 uh, uh, we do have an SBU report that we're going to talk about, uh, sure. which actually is acute, sure. and, and I, I can, very important, we'll table that to that so, he, uh, so uh, Dr. Hahn can get to his report. But we'll, we'll spend a bulk of our time talking about this. Great. This yeah. issue. I just have a, a couple of final points. We had our uh, psychiatry department report um, and the discussion uh, Dr. Siddhartha was talking about enhancing access to psychiatry and behavioral health services across AHS to include San Leandro and Alameda Hospital uh, emergency department consults. Uh, sort of tightening up the number of credential doctors actually um, on the medical staff roles uh, and then putting um, uh, safety and quality benchmarks in uh, to, to do better measuring of, uh, of their departmental efforts. Um, in addition, we spent some time talking about the chair and chief leadership development. There's a leadership academy here that uh, the, the, some of the medical staff leaders um, have been invited to, and that's going to be an ongoing process, um, as well as uh, some national conferences that are actually based in San Francisco, so we're going to save money by sending our folks locally so we don't have to pay for airfare, hotel, et cetera. They, assuming, will stay in their own homes. Um, but that will be a way to get them educational and medical staff leadership training uh, in a sort of much more efficient process. Uh, my final other two things are that our wellness uh, counselor is in place. I think I mentioned that last time. Um, we have a, a half-time wellness counselor that is available to members of the medical staff of all campuses and all hospitals. Uh, and uh, she's had a number of, uh, uh, um, she's met with a number of people both via Skype um, and for drop-in and, and sort of scheduled meetings. There are a number of um, challenging cases uh, in our, in various departments in both the acute and non-acute um, settings. 
and I think she's helped a lot of providers um, in her very short time here already. In addition, we had our first wellness uh, grand rounds on Wednesday uh, and brought in a national speaker um, here, and that was broadcast to all nine campuses so people could log on and, and hear the speaker uh, talk about mindfulness and uh, self-care for the caregiver, and that was really interesting, uh, just yesterday at noon. Um, That's been a heavy lift. What's that? I, th I think we should take pause on this. This has been a heavy lift. Uh, so congratulations for you spearheading this with Dr. Jay Satira, of course, always working in the background. This is this is sort of a big deal for all the medical staff. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. Very cool. Um, and then finally, our medical executive committee retreat is going to be on the 13th of October, uh, where all three MedEx uh, committee members um, and uh, any other members of the leadership uh, team here are welcome to join and learn about uh, medical staff issues, credentialing, legal issues, behavior problems, uh, how to deal with those, um, as well as wellness topics as well. And that's Saturday morning, and that's going to be at Alameda Hospital. Okay. Um, and that ends my report, unless there are other questions. Trustee, do you have a question? Well, it's a broad question. It doesn't necessarily have to just rest with one facility, but I was really intrigued by this um, observation that you've had a surge in patients uh, come through, and then another comment about there being potentially a surge of patients in a lot of different facilities. Um, I'm sure somewhere people track this sort of thing nationally, but um, I, I know we've talked about this before, it bears just repeating. I think the current climate that we're in today means that many individuals that we care for in our county are not seeking care for fear of being um, found or iced or deported, whatever the word may be. And so what that does to people is it puts them, you know, sort of delay, delay, delay. And so by the time they do come to the ED, they're really quite troubled and even more uh, profoundly ill. And so um, this isn't just our problem. I think this is happening nationally. And I think the stress of what uh, that means for the most vulnerable populations, even if you're not immigrant status, what it does to some is I can't afford care anyway, so I might as well not go. I mean, I hear that from people. So there, there isn't a solution just for us, but I do worry, especially when I think about what this means for um, the numbers that we're going to see, what is our plan to address that? Because I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So somehow we need to be educating our partners in the community about, uh, again, we care for all. We're not partnering with any, um, you know, immigration, uh, uh, you know, agency. That, that we're doing our best to make this place a safe place to come to get care. Because if you're waiting that long and you're that ill, it's going to get worse, right? So, I, you know, just an observation that we need to be thinking about that and, and looking for ways to educate our partners and educate patients. Thank you. Thank you. Trustees, any other comments? Do you, I, I just wanted to know, do you still have, like, people, uh, patients in the packing for, like, four nights and three nights or four nights? And yeah, we were, uh, last week, and we had 27 admits in, in the ED. We yeah. had, I believe, seven in the PACU. And literally, my colleagues were like, when can we send people to random places? Like, when? Oh, and we also had, a, there was a rumor of an MCI. So that paramedic said that oh, was, there was a rumor of, of a mass casualty incident that was, that was happening. And, and literally, my two colleagues, Dr. Bailey and Dr. Miller, looked around and they're like, and the rumor was that there was an explosion or some sort of fire at a homeless encampment. 
Um, and it was unclear how many patients we were going to get from that. And they looked around like, how how are we going to deal with this? And it 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 it'll, it'll dovetail in in my um, my successor, Dr. Bullard, is going to probably uh, focus on MCI and disaster preparedness. Um, and I think that that's a that's a that's a that's a big challenge if. Uh, and when we are impacted, yeah. um, how do we deal with like that sort of like dramatic presentation? Mm -hmm. and luckily, we didn't actually get uh, uh, it wasn't a, as big of an MCI as, as it, it could have been, um, but it, uh, it it made everybody sort of like pause to say like how are we going to deal with something so dramatic when we're so impacted? So true. Yeah, so true. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hearn, do you have any further comments, concerns, or suggestions to help us improve the state of quality? I think I've spoken enough about my issues. <laughs> Thank you for all three of your reports. With that, we'll close item D. We'll move into item E, uh, the acute SBU report uh, by Mr. Luis Fonseca, which will segue nicely from our last discussion. Uh, Doctor, uh, Mr. Fonseca's report is on page 30, begins on page 30 of the packet. Uh, very nice, there's a very nice narrative written out. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as the, the trustees may recall, we're trying to move towards uh, less presentation, more dialogue, which I'm happy all about. So uh, if okay, Luis, I'll, I'll open up to, to the trustees and see if they have any questions by my section. And then we can, we can probably dive into the whole discussion we've been having. So trustees, have at it. I, I just appreciate the narrative, and yeah. uh, once again, I think we've talked about this in closed session. I don't feel like it's something that we should uh, preclude from open session. There are some pretty interesting numbers here in terms of, um, you know, patients' uh, complaints and stuff across the system, and I'm just eager to know, as we get better and better at the teasing out of the data and really looking at why those are happening, um, I'm looking forward to hearing from you and others. Um, what are those top concerns? What are those trends in terms of the common issues that people are presenting to us? Um, and this is in particular, I think I looked at uh, page uh, 36. It is the graphic that I think summarizes everything uh, for us. Um, and again, just notice an, an uptick in the numbers. Yeah. Luis, could you comment on why do you think our case mix index is actually rising? Well, that would actually defer to my physician colleague who can okay. speak to that best. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, uh, two, uh, two reasons. Uh, one, we, we think that we are seeing uh, sicker patients, plus we have an effort about better documentation, right. which mm -hmm. is uh, a CDI project mm -hmm. uh, that is ongoing, and we are seeing an increase in the, in the case mix index, uh, especially here at Highland. Remember, historically, our case mix index has actually kind of been on par with general community hospitals, which we, which which doesn't feel right. So I, I think the doc, the CDI, the or lower, uh, or, or, or even lower, lower even lower. Than our community hospitals right. in San Leandro, now Alameda, which is sort of amazing, isn't mm -hmm. it? Uh, so I think I think, uh, and remember, case mix index ties into expected length of stay, it ties into payment schema, and all things. So so important. I think that clinical documentation initiative has been extraordinarily important for us, and I think that's probably one of the drivers in addition to sick people mm -hmm. where we kind of get this continuous fluctuation in sick people. What was done for clinical documentation? What was that initiative? So we have uh, currently uh, a contractor uh, who, uh, who audit uh, the Medicare uh, charts mm -hmm. 
uh, and gives uh, gives uh, like uh, uh, a review to the to the physicians, and they they document and correct accordingly. So there has been a learning process around this. Uh, in our documentation in uh, in soy and clinical. Um, unfortunately, we didn't build the ICD-10, so we left it up to the back and uh, discharge officers to do the, the, the capturing of uh, whether it is the cases or the diagnosis. And uh, as we go into EPIC, I'm expecting to see like a major increase in this. Meanwhile, we are continuing to work with the physicians in terms of educating them about uh, better documentation and capturing all the diagnoses that are relevant uh, to the event of the patients. Mm. Oh, I didn't know we hadn't built ICD-10 into the yeah. soil. We, uh, uh, yeah, it is, uh, we didn't link it to the, to the uh, billing process. So in the discharge summary, it goes into a narrative and then it is reviewed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, 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 I didn't know either until I, I worked on the war and on the ICU and I see it. In the next gen, we build it. Everything now is in ICD-10. Mm -hmm. So does it have to go back to the physician then to review the ICD-10 yes. coding before it can go out again? So the, the, only the, the physicians are, can agree to the ICD-10s, as I understand? So no, they don't, uh, they, uh, that's true, but there are queries that, okay. uh, that uh, the CDI team take to the physicians and they respond to the queries accordingly. And during this process, they learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So will there be, need, will, are they going to need to go through additional training on ICD-10? Don't the physicians haven't really been trained on it yet, or do you think that they understand the whole ICD-10? No, no. Currently, the ICD-10, uh, from the aspect of training, I think we are good. And also from the tool, the ICD-10, uh, in terms of when you look for the diagnosis, it's very user-friendly. It's very user-friendly. Yeah. User mm -hmm. mm -hmm. There are about 60,000 it auto-populates. Many people will continue to pick the same ICD-10 codes because it's easy, but nonetheless, we get generalized mm -hmm. in, in, in the right target. So it's, it's automated. And the, the tools that are available, like in NextGen, you can build your own library of your common, of your common uh, ICD-10, so you can pull them. You don't need any resources. There are tools that we train people what to use. I have a question. Denise, um, do you feel uh, that some of the impact on these scores is in essence um, skewed by, say, the most frequent users of our ED that might be 250 people, 300 people, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but is that a known population to us? And is that influencing some of these scores? Uh, you know, a lot of hospitals see the same person coming back and, you know, doing the same, uh, sort of coming for the same purpose or same reason. Do we have a known population like that that we're trying to work with? Yeah, I can answer this. Our patient population in Highland uh, is very much uh, the patients who uh, really do not have access to care or use uh, the emergency room uh, for like one-stop shopping for all the care. Plus, the unfortunate patients who are hit, uh, you know, during an accident or become septic and very ill. Uh, so, uh, our uh, our ED physicians 
they, they work sometimes, as you saw in the first page of the New York Times uh, on Sunday, they work sometimes as primary care because uh, they link this to care. And, and our uh, admission uh, rate uh, in our uh, ED at Highland is really among the lowest in the nation. It's only 13%. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's that's at Highland. Now at San Leandro, um, it's very interesting. Uh, we see uh, like uh, trends of ways of patients. So certainly, uh, uh, you know, that's my observation. Dr. George, should we, we add more? There are trends where you see patients sent from nursing home in the neighborhood for certain procedures or certain testing, and uh, we see pe people who just like uh, walk walk in. Uh, into San Leandro. And there is also a number of uh, patients who are from the community physicians who just come also some, sometimes for certain testing or procedure. Mm -hmm. And um, in Alameda Hospital, I haven't observed, but maybe uh, maybe Elle can, can talk more, but you know, it, it just serves a community in, in Alameda Island. They just come to, to, to Alameda Hospital. Now to talk about the, what we call, you know, I hate to call, but they call them frequent flyers, you know. Uh, they are mainly related to patients uh, uh, which, uh, again, I don't like to call, call them behavioral issues. Uh, and I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, looking at the PS, for example, at John George, and looking at these patients who come uh, at, at expected times and they keep coming back. At John George, we have, uh, we have quite a number of patients who keep coming back. And I think the problem with those patients uh, because why do I, I don't like to call it behavioral issues because it's really uh, uh, social issues. I think it is really an economic and social issues uh, which we are trying to solve with the clinical tools. Uh, and I, I always, uh, uh, you know, uh, go from question what's wrong with you to what happened to you because really nothing is wrong with them. It's just what happened to them, you know, they lose their homes. They lose their family, uh, uh, and and they have behavioral issues. They revert to either drug abuse or alcoholism, and then they are captured on the street. Uh, so these these are like what we call a frequent flyer, and we are really thinking about how to address those 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 patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me let me let me just add to what Dr. Gamali was saying. So I mean, because I think the to answer your question, I think it's very difficult to just answer the question. We we do have. You know, patients that frequently visit our emergency departments across all of the sites. You know, but there's a lot of work that's been ongoing. Uh, if you recall, probably about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, you know, we we, we embarked on the Eddy system, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which you know helps really understand and, and, and helps us manage that that population of, of frequent utilizers, high utilizers. Uh, there's also the work that's going on under complex care management uh, and, and equally the Alameda Care Connect. So the work that they're focusing on looking at the highest of the highest risk, you know, and the most vulnerable. Uh, on top of that, you know, we're working with the Alliance and focusing on that population uh, under the health home program or the pilot. So there's, there's a lot of activity that's going on with that. Yes, we do see some frequent visits in, in our days and our, our, our docs here would certainly speak to that. And so they, you know, they almost to a certain extent have relationships with a lot of these individuals uh, in some cases because they see them so frequently. But, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in the EDs, they, they treat them and manage them. We're trying to help assist them with uh, some of those social needs uh, to help, you know, prevent those recurring visits. And, and really specifically, we, we've put a very focused effort in John George. And at John George, we've done a tremendous amount of work 
uh, and, and really focusing on the efforts of the triage physicians that are seeing these patients, that are managing their conditions. We've got additional social workers and we've revamped the model of care in the PES to where we're more heavily focused on dealing with those social needs than we are essentially with you know, the clinical needs. And so uh, that's been helping and we're seeing that uh, uh, much more. I mean, we're, we're, recently we started seeing an uptick and, and visits in our PES when we had been seeing a very uh, steep decline, over, you know, which was wonderful. I mean, to a certain extent, that was wonderful that we're seeing that. We're starting to see it come back up, and a lot of it is driven by some of the changes that have happened in the county, uh, where they've made, some, you know, they've closed and, you know, they, they've repurposed one of their major facilities here that now we're seeing that is having an impact, and so we're tracking that very closely. But I think to answer your question, we, we do track that uh, at all of our different sites. We're trying to leverage these programs, connect these patients, uh, you know, to, to these different services to ensure that we can help move them in the right direction and hopefully minimize that utilization. So, yeah. Yeah, for John George, that system, I remember that when there was all these surges in the PES, that there was that system where folks could call the other hospitals and say don't send anyone quite yet because we are full or I, I don't quite know how the census management plan. The census management plan, mm -hmm. right. And now that it's been kind of you know manageable for the last year almost, right? Has it been more than a year where it's been 40, 50, not like the 70s and things that right. we would see. So is that by just making sure that we're ahead with the census management plan as well, training up the new staff knowing to do that was one thing. And the second thing I wanted to ask is with the readmission work group. I know when we had done a SBU acute care dashboard one time, we had seen that with San Leandro Hospital, because your average length of stay was so much shorter than compared to the other hospitals here, was there a correlation with the readmission rates out there? And I know Dr. Shu, you had mentioned that that might be a factor. So is that, has that been mitigated somewhat with the work group that's kind of looking through all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll let Dr. Mullen speak to that as well, but I, I will answer both of your questions uh, from, from my perspective. Uh, we have, um, in the PES, the Census Management Plan has been in place now for a little year, about a year and a half. That was, you know, something that we were working towards and we implemented as a result of some of those extremely high, relatively unsafe conditions that were identified in the PES. And so um, it's, it's, it's a living document. It's, it's a living process that is looked at every single day on every single shift because there's, there's multiple variables that are considered as part of the Census Management Plan. It's really not driven on a number. You know, we, we've actually implemented our Census Management Plan with a census of 30. Okay. Acuity. But the acuity was high. One-to-one -one coverage was high. Um, you know, they, they, you know, because of the ligature uh, and, and, and not only the ligature, but also just the suicide risk assessments that were being performed, and so they they required uh, you know higher attention. So one to ones, physician coverage, uh, things of that nature. So staffing, there's all these variables that are considered on pretty much every shift, and and hour by hours are looking at them as we're managing their census in the PES. There's been times when we've had 60 patients and we don't have a census hold. So again, it varies. Uh, we've implemented census management multiple times over the last year, uh, but I will say that the impact to the facilities uh, external, you know, community facilities has been very minimal. Uh, if any, if any, the greatest impact has been Highland, and that number has been, 
you know, single digit, you know, four, five, six patients. So, uh, you know, they've been doing really good work. The staff is very active. You know, just like we go into, uh, you know, uh, as we say, command center mode here at Highland when we are at a NEDOC surge level red. Well. PES kind of has their own version of command center mode when they implement the the, uh, the, the census management plan. So again, we, we've got a lot of processes in place. We're looking at that. We're managing it very, very closely. Uh, it's working well. Uh, it's proven to be very effective. The staff all know how to implement, how to escalate, how to leverage these uh, these different triggers and uh, move things forward. So that's you know from a PES perspective. From uh, a, a San Leandro perspective, looking at the length of stay, I mean, our average length of stay at uh, San Leandro is about 3.8 or so, 3.8 or so, uh, as we've seen. And so it's obviously much lower than what we're seeing e even at this facility here. And so, uh, again, a lot of that has to do with you know, our providers out there, you know, our hospitalists uh, who are, you know, very uh, uh, engaged and involved with the patient care there. The, you know, the, the population that's being seen at San Leandro is, is different, uh, you know, the, the, the level of acuity, you know, some of the services that are provided uh, and, and, you know, the types of patients are, are really cannot be compared to those that we see here at Highland. And so, uh, you know, there, there's, it, it's you're kind of comparing apples and oranges it, it, to a certain extent, but, you know, but it, it really is, it comes down to the, the work effort that's being done by our, our hospitalist group, you know, our, obviously our ED providers and how they're really carrying in and immediately dealing with those, you know, providing those interventions in the ED and carrying that through to the through the inpatient setting. So that that's kind of you know some of the drivers that we're seeing there and how we're managing those populations. I mean, it's really just uh, the work effort of all the groups, but also our social services and our care management team who's managing that population. So those are the groups that I remember. So the, the physicians right in order and the patient for discharge. And um, as Dr. Hume pointed out, the um, patients who are in the emergency room who are staying there because there's a bed that's not available because the patient hasn't been discharged. So what is the, the, the issue there? I, I, I understand that PES at, at John George's you know, we resolved that issue, but that was, was more about the physicians writing the orders and triaging the patients. And this is really about post-order, post post-physician post, um, activity and why aren't patients being discharged so that the beds are available. Well, I mean, it, it, and again, it's multifaceted. I mean, it, it, you know, we just can't kick these people out of the facility. Uh, well, I mean, exactly. these patients. I mean, we have to care, and we have to continue to care for these patients. And, sure. and even if Dr. Bating will share with you, I mean, again, you know, there's many times when, you know, her, her medicine teams are, are caring for a certain number of patients and a certain number of these, uh, you know, people that are in, still in, in, in beds that don't necessarily require inpatient acute care services. They have been discharged already. They have not been discharged. They've been written orders for discharge, but they're still being for. I'm just trying to understand the, how the process works. Right. So, it so sounded like from what Dr. Kern said that um, patients on the floors, and there may be one or more floors or one or more services that are, that are more impacted than others, but it sounds like, and we've heard this in the past as well, that the surges are because there are patients, and as you mentioned also um, on the weekends, especially when patients may not be released after their discharge orders have been signed. And so I'm just trying to understand why uh, how the process works there and why that what, what we can do to make that happen more quickly. Can you speak to that? Can I just want to add to that a little bit? 
Yes. Sure. I'd like to know what percentage of these are because you don't have an adequate disposition for the patient. Yeah. You know, how often is it that you don't have a bed and a sniff available or you just don't have, you know, I, I did hear that, you know, you couldn't discharge patients because, you know, you didn't have an IV therapy team that could have taken care of that. So is that kind of a big part of this problem or... Yeah, so placing patients in sniff beds in the community is a big part of the problem. We just don't have enough sniff beds um, to meet the needs of our patients here at Highland. And so it's it's a constant evaluation and process that our care management team um, is doing. There have been some, I think there's some exciting improvements that are underway with that. Um, there's something called All Scripts, which is a new um, sort of automated process that will allow, for instance, our care manager to put out a request that uh, will go out to several SNFs at once instead of the current process, which means they call one by one and wait for a response and send faxes. So that, we're really excited about that process. I think it's going to start first at Alameda and San Leandro and, um, in September and then roll out in October, from what I understand, at Highland. So that's really exciting. Um, so I think we're going to be improving our process um, of, of finding placement for some of these um, patients who require SNF level care. Um, in terms of the actual disposition on the day of discharge, I think we have some opportunities to improve that process, and that's one of the many um, work groups that have come out of our newly refashioned and invigorated throughput committee. So there are a couple different work groups. Work groups will be looking at not only the timing of discharge orders, but the creating a standard work around discharge. Um, but to answer your question, there are sometimes some delays once the discharge order is written. Usually it's someone waiting for a ride or a loved one to get off work. Um, but that's not usually the, the main issue in our search process because we have what we call a discharge lounge that we can put patients in and so we can open up the bed. So we really... I think to clarify for, 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 mm -hmm. uh, for you know, Trustee Jensen, uh, you know, I, I think what I heard her question was, or maybe the misunderstanding that there's, there's patients or, you know, people that are sitting in patient rooms in bed that discharge orders have been written and that they've been sitting there for extended periods of time. No, that doesn't, that, that, that almost never happens. Um, we don't, you know, we, we don't write discharge orders until, until we've ensured disposition. Correct, right. So either we've ensured that it's safe for them to go home and they have a home to save in a way to get home, or that we, we've ensured placement. So it, it, it almost never happens that someone will be here for any period of time with discharge orders unless they're waiting on a ride. So that's I mean, guess, maybe I, I should rephrase. I guess maybe I, I first, or maybe what I mean is that they are not in need. Patients are not in need of this program. Yes, exactly. we have several right. patients at any given time on the medical surface who no longer need the acute services of Highland Hospital. We deem them medically stable for discharge. Um, it's on average in the last week somewhere between 20 and 25 patients on the medicine service alone who are medically stable and ready for discharge but have no place to go as of yet. And how we got a date? I'm sorry? 20, 25 a date? Yes. So, and that there would be less than 25 patients in the ED who could take advantage of those beds. So, so that's exactly, thank you, doctor. And so how can we... What, what is the, 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 the gap 
for these patients who are medically ready for discharge, it, it, it could be mostly sniff beds. I mean, I it's mostly sniff beds. Sometimes, um, for instance, it may be a patient who's on chronic hemodialysis and is awaiting a chair in the community. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to place patients in the community for hemodialysis. Sometimes it's sniff. But Sometimes they're waiting for the waiting room. But that would mean that he was waiting in the ER. He wasn't right. waiting in right. upstairs. Um, so it's not a new problem. Um, sometimes it's a, a social or legal issue, like someone's waiting conservatorship, and we have to establish that before we can proceed with a plan of care. I mean, there's a variety of reasons, but I would probably say the number one is sniff bed. But you mentioned the, 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 the discharge room, or the discharge area, mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, is that something that, and I know that there's a lot of work going on in this area, but is that something that can be... You can only use the discharge, the discharge area for a patient who is waiting an hour or two for a ride. We can't use that area for a patient who has nowhere to go because, I mean, it could be days or weeks. We have a patient who's been waiting, you know, months for placement. So, so is it housing an issue? With an, an issue which is somewhat fairly unique to our patient population yeah, as well? I would say that, that patients do await housing Although I think actually that's one of the areas in which our care management team excels, um, is finding boarding care or respite care for patients. Um, so I don't see that as a dominant barrier. Um, it's one of the many things our patients face in terms of their care management needs. But I think the sniff bed um, issue is, is paramount. So there's, there's, there's a variety of things. And I mean, again, there's, there's, there's multiple um, you know, focus areas that we're looking at here. And so, but I wanted to make sure that we were clear on that. I mean, there is no discharge order that's written uh, and patients are just sitting here. I mean, and then they become kind of, this becomes a hotel, right? And it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they're still patients. They're still, we still have an accountability. We have a responsibility. We're providing some limited oversight in here. And so that's happening. So. Well, I think before, just to interrupt, sorry, Bruce, but I think that in the past we didn't have such a robust um, discharge planning and um, social work and, and team, and, and I appreciate that. And so this is this is clarification for me that that team is in place and that they are getting out there and finding um, placements and that if it's available, but as Diane Burton pointed out, I think it's not always. It's, yeah, and the discharge order is not actually written until we have confirmed and validated a safe care plan for when they can leave the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't initiate that process until we knew we had a place for someone to safely go. Okay. So, so, sorry, this is probably still an issue as well, right? In that discharge plan, and so that can be yes. yes. So that's where the, the care management team comes in with respite care and, and shelters, and we've been we've increased the number of beds in the community that have become available to our patients in terms of um, housing. So it's still an issue. I'm not I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. Um, but um, I think we're doing much better in that regard. Is there some way for us to take a look at the, the unnecessary days to kind of get a sense of the sure. percentages and we'll see? Track that. Yeah, and let us see, you know, how many of these are results of, of, of skilled nursing shortages. I mean, one of the concerns I have going forward, just because I, I know a little bit about the skilled nursing industry, is, is this bed shortage is going, going to get worse. Right? It's not going to get any better because no one's building skilled nursing anywhere right now in the state. And so, you know, knowing that we're, we're moving forward with looking more at kind of population health, is this the time that I think we as an organization need to start looking at what are the solutions that are going to be available to us and are there other creative ways of accomplishing the same without 
trying to find a skilled nursing bed that just isn't going to be available in the future. Using of hierarchy beds, yeah. yeah. And, and I know that one of the things that you have also mentioned is the weekend, sometimes that kind of thing. And I know that's a relatively easier fix to have staff that, you know, if it's not a Thursday discharge, then it moves over to you know, Monday or something, but that 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 has been that is being addressed aggressively. We are. We're, we're fo yeah, we're, we're focusing on on all of that. So I think to Trustee Jensen's point, I mean, our care management team over the last year and a half has been going through a major transformation, a complete overhaul. And, and there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done, mm -hmm. but they have done, uh, they, they, they've really gone leaps and bounds where they've established relationships with different community providers. Mm -hmm. They've extended, uh, you know, uh, and, and looked at bringing in additional beds for, for, you know, some of our patient population. You know, again, skilled nursing, as Dr. Bain said, you know, it is an issue and it is, a, you know, I, I will tell you, for example, this morning, our skilled nursing facilities were at 99.3% occupancy. Wow. They're full, right? So, you know, we're, we're working through that, and, and as Dr. Bain mentioned, you know, that, that system, that application that we're bringing in, introducing technology to help streamline the process to help us look at, you know, multiple locations at once, uh, you know, will, will, will certainly be a benefit. Uh, but again, the other issue that we're seeing as well, and, and we see this regularly, is our care management team, our skilled nursing team, our post-acute team with Richard um, and his staff, they're constantly in communication, looking at how we can help support and facilitate some of these these uh, transfers and these patients, you know, to the next level of care. But oftentimes, they don't even meet skilled nursing facility level of care, and so that in itself is an issue. And I think that sometimes the disconnect where there's this perception that, oh, hey, well, why don't the SNFs take these patients, send them to Fairmont, send them to Fairmont, Fairmont won't accept them because Fairmont's like, well. <laughs> Uh, it, he doesn't meet the criteria, and they also have a very defined criteria that they have to abide by. So, so there's all these different moving parts that we're working through. But bottom line, I honestly think that we are we are really moving the needle. We're making some great strides in, in improving our processes. It's that, you know it, it, it's you know we it's not happening fast enough for for many of us because we would love it. You know we'd love to have it done tomorrow. But, but it is something that we're doing in a way that will be sustainable, that we can manage, and that we can really have in place to support not only our providers but also our staff and everyone involved. When we, when we um, finished the the San Diego Fairmont project, the, the, the we had? yeah, that will give us. I mean, it's down the road a little bit, but that should fill up some of those that are current that are currently being used. No, we're not using any skilled nursing beds. So uh, remember the, the Fairmont facility, the rehab. we have, right, that's the acute rehab. Those are those are inpatient acute beds. But you mentioned different levels of acuity, so I'm, I was going the other direction, like if the higher acuity um, acute rehab were possible in the facility. Right, but, then we're, we're, yeah, but there's, yeah, there's licensing requirements and there's service. I mean, you know, if a decision is made, and, and I think that, you know, Tristy Charlin's point is very, very key. I mean, I, I think that's the kind of strategic discussion we need to have to determine what is that future need? What are we looking at? Where should we focus our efforts? Because we will have mm. a geographic footprint mm. at Fairmont that, you know, it may be that we want to renovate that space and yeah. repurpose it and relicense it for additional skilled nursing facility. Fed by the data that Dr. Baden just gave us, 20 to 25 a day, you know, we can make this a math problem. Okay. So, okay. We should so, so again, those are some decisions we value and consider. Yeah. Well, we, we may look at other options. You know, there's birds and care, there's... There are other options for those who are less acute but don't have a placement.
Urban care is cheaper than in a acute bed in a hospital. Urban care with home care. Urban care with home health. You can certainly do IV therapy in a, in a board and care. I, I, is there such a thing, I'm sorry for being maybe too uh, crass with this, but is there such a thing as Airbnb for slightly sniff related beds? Boarding care. Actually, some of the boarding care, I mean, who's missing on the conversation is Sheila and Israel because they are very creative. You know, yeah. we, we pay hotel. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, we pay hotel for certain yeah. places, but we want to ensure their safety. Yeah. Yeah. It's but cheaper it's, than having them here in the hospital. Yeah, and, uh, and again, my, my question uh, early on was, if indeed we can identify, if it's 600 people that fall into that bank, if it's 250 people, it just seems like that coordinated care that you're doing, the care management team that's really very creative and proper, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, can we empower them to be very proactive around that population because it sounds very predictable and that you can anticipate them. That, that was so important to make sure they're empowered to come back to you, Louise, and say, look, we're always going to need to purchase this kind of, you know, extra help. We're always going to need to have taxis available to take them wherever they need. It, it feels almost like you can anticipate that high need population, and it may, if you do so, just thinking out loud here, brainstorming, that some of the numbers then get influenced by how quickly we anticipate that particular population. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah it makes sense. Uh, I will ask Sheila to come and present her data. Oh, actually, the data shows that uh, we, we really are doing uh, much better than before on this. Uh, and when we look into the 17 to 20, 25 patients, every story is so different. It is a story so tragic. So uh, in terms of systematic like uh, approach, towards this and uh, where we are going, um, it's not a simple solution. So we are, I mean, uh, the old script is going to be a tool. I, I'm very curious to see how it will, it's, it's a tool we have used in Europe for, for a long time. Uh, and uh, and uh, also having more beds for like the IV uh, drug users. Mm -hmm. We are building a relationship with the addresses also outside. Uh, we are looking at our nephrology services. So we are really looking at a lot of, of, of those, those issues. And uh, uh, we will bring back the data about what we call the administrative day and the extended length of stay. Yeah, that is presented before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think strategically we just have to look at this as to how we're going to address this in the future. Mm -hmm. right? As resources become more and more I think, you know, looking at, at, at other alternative mm -hmm. solutions and other alternative delivery systems is going to be critical. And it should be kind of a strategic plan for us or a strategic direction to say how we're going to address this in the future. One of the work group out of the throughput uh, uh, committee is, is extended length of stay to have data and metrics and, uh, and see how, how we can help the board into, uh, you know, seeing the strategy and the investment. I, I, I'd like to, you know, take uh, take chair's uh, leisure and take three minutes on the mic to, to bring a medical analogy for this. I'm Dr. Baden and Dr. Hahn will probably roll their eyes on this. I've not yet copyrighted it, but I will. <laughs> I, I think of this problem as congestive hospital failure. And if you know about congestive heart failure, uh, when you think about congestive heart failure, there are really three elements of congestive heart failure. There's the inflow, we call that a preload problem. 
there's a pump problem, the heart actually doesn't work, and then there's the afterload or the out outflow problem. So if we can think about this in the same analogy, there are the, the, the complexity of the elements here. You know, a lot of what we've been discussing here has been afterload problem. Right? Uh, we certainly have pump problems. Our, our consultants could maybe consult a little bit earlier in the day. Our, our procedures could get done a little bit earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. The preload problem, sometimes we can't help. It's flu, it's flu season. But, but I think if, if we kind of saw it in this element about that, this because otherwise it's just a complex pool. You know, is this a preload problem? Is this a pump problem? Or is this an afterload problem? I think that can help us on the board and, and us in general in the hospital figure out because I think we have a lot of problems across three elements of here. Because sometimes when you have a CHF patient, you just focus on afterload reduction and that helps them a lot. And, and then we can actually do the math and discern which, where our biggest bang for the buck is. Mm -hmm. And I think afterload reduction would be very, 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 very helpful for this system. And um, um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's not mm -hmm. So we are, we, are, we are working on, I think to your point, um, as Dr. Hearn mentioned earlier, we've got 13, to be exact, 13 <laughs> current projects or focus areas that we're looking at. 13 of a list of 30. Hmm. But we narrowed it down, can't boil the ocean. But uh, the committee, the steering committee that we've revamped, uh, which I'm very pleased to say has got great engagement from our senior uh, leadership and our physicians. And so we're focusing on uh, narrowing down that list of the multiple opportunities that exist and how we're you know, we're going to be very deliberate and take specific action. And this is going to require us to challenge ourselves, to challenge the status quo, to change our practices. Now, things that maybe have been in place for decades, we need to do it differently. And that's what it's going to take. And we're going to push that. And we're going to continue to drive that. And we're going to make it happen. And so, so far, we're seeing it. I mean, I, I will say that over the last two days, uh, or the past two days, I, I get this email. You know, uh, as many of us get an email from, you know, what the status is of our ED. And, you know, yesterday morning at uh, 6 a.m. when I looked at my phone and I saw that, and I saw that there was only one admission at 6 a.m. Uh, there were two, but one that didn't have the orders yet, so there was one admission. We were in green, uh, and we've been sustaining that. And today at uh, the latest report I saw on 3.30 was still uh, green. And so the work that's happening not only with this effort here with the Cooper Committee, because again, this, this really, we haven't even put our arms into this. We've been working and establishing and identifying the participants, building the work groups, working and focusing on those efforts. But as we started this process, we also needed to do something immediately, and we did. And we started working with our nursing leadership. And as, you know, Dr. Bain and Dr. Hearn mentioned, uh, I would have to just repeat that our, our nursing leaders have been Wonder Woman, right? I mean, they've just been phenomenal. They've stepped in, they've rolled up their sleeves, and they've been setting the tone, not only for their departments and their units, but also for the entire facility. Challenging other departments, challenging other areas, facilitating communication, encouraging and engaging in that communication, and making sure that we're all moving and working together. And it's proven to be very effective. Uh, so. We're, we're going to continue with that effort. Uh, it's not that it's been fixed. Uh, you know, things may happen. But when I look at our reports and I look at our ED volume, I would say, well, why? why? Is it that we're green because we saw that many less patients? No. Yesterday we saw 184 patients. Today or the day before that, and yesterday we saw 178. I mean, so it's 
That's about average. We see about 180 patients a day. There's times when we see 200, sometimes, but it's 180 patients. It's still there. Mm -hmm. So something's happening, and it's that ongoing focus, that commitment, mm -hmm. and making sure that the nurse managers, under the leadership of their nursing directors, are really running a, a what we would call a mini command center. Their unit is a command center, and they need to take that ownership. They need to be empowered. They need to challenge. They need to push back. They need to collaborate and partner with their physicians. That's how this all comes together. And so we're, we're starting to see that. We're starting to shift that culture. It's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start talking about other stuff here, hopefully, in, in, in a couple of months. Just like two uh, points. Um, your analogy to congestive heart failure is very relevant, but I'd like to, uh, to uh, carry forward this analogy. Sometimes when you take out of the afterload, like let's say two units, you increase the pump. Yeah, yeah. So the pump, because people who are overloaded with work and they have things in their way, their uh, performance uh, is affected. So when sometimes we are able to move three patients, we can get six patients in because the performance starts to get better. These, these patients are very uh, consuming in their care, which is really sometimes is really supportive, not clinical. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, I don't want uh, Dr. Banerjee question not to be answered as it relates to San Diego intervention in terms of the readmissions. So in the analysis, through the admission work, we did an analysis on those patients. And uh, in the analysis, we found uh, two systematic uh, uh, issues that were addressed. Uh, one is uh, access to medications after discharge for patients who are uh, uh, medical. And we don't have a pharmacy, a 340B at San Diego. There was an intervention to ensure that they get their medications. Uh, I don't know how they do it with contracting with the pharmacy and then ensuring that we are they are getting their medications. Uh, the second are, uh, again, for uninsured and uh, medical patients access to primary care or patient care. Mm -hmm. Also, we have ensured that we have uh, some kind of call center to ensure they have appointment. Mm -hmm. So these two interventions were in place. Uh, uh, Sheila, in the last discussion I had with her, uh, you know, she's reassuring me that we are seeing an improvement in, in that in that in that. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's really good to I mean, it's such an important subject. Throughput basically defines uh, the, the, the acute care. So uh, tough questions for Luis, Rachel, Dr. Baden, and Dr. Hahn. Um, I'm going to ask each of you what your greatest point of optimism is right now that this problem is going to get better. And then second, what would be your strongest recommendation to do something to fix it? So I'll start off with Luis. Your greatest point of optimism we've had so far for this problem. And then what, if you could just do one thing, what would that one thing be? <laughs> One, <laughs> where would our energies have to be, be most wisely invested? I think the, the one thing is um, really improved communication okay. across all the different disciplines and everyone that's involved in the process. That's, that seems to be our greatest opportunity. And that's awesome that's, that's free. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, I mean, I, and really, I think most of everything that we need to do is well, nothing's free by yeah. that. But it, it's, 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 you know, it's really improving the work that we're doing, really is creating standard work around the processes that, you know, having role clarity and understanding what everyone's responsible and accountable for, and then having that accountability, holding them accountable to that standard. And so, but I think communication is one thing that I, you know, if, if we could, you know, continue to improve that and solidify that, I think that'd make a big difference. Awesome. Um, and, and optimism, I, I have to say that 
the engagement from our physicians and, and our staff and every discipline, the, the, the shared focus and, and uh, the shared commitment to make a difference, to move forward, to be willing to change. Uh, their willingness to change is, is, is something that I'm sensing, I'm seeing, and I think it's very energizing. Awesome. Thanks. Sorry, Dr. Baden, putting you on the spot. So I think that what is very visible through um, our working groups and through our analysis of this is that we have very siloed work yeah. around discharges and discharge planning. And I think we have not tapped into one of our most important resources in this process, and that's our nursing team. Um, and that, by that, I mean we have not effectively engaged our floor nurses and our frontline nursing staff um, in a way that has been effective in our discharge process. Um, so I think I'm most optimistic about that because we've got some really engaged nursing leaders. Um, and I think if we can define roles that are clear um, and, and improve our communication, I think engaging our frontline nurses in this will make a huge difference. Um, and so I'm most excited about that. Um, along with the improving communication, I would, I would echo what we said. And I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to achieve this because I think we've got really good leadership in place um, and we'll be able to, I think this is actually also free yeah. <laughs> and, um, and can be a pretty immediate change that I'm hoping to see in the coming weeks mm -hmm. slash months and, and I think this will improve our, our process. Thank you. Dr. Um, I think the thing that is that I'm most optimistic about it and excited about is the fact that, that people are engaged, that people are very dedicated to this institution and to the mission, and so I think people are willing to sort of do what it takes to, to make it work. Um, the thing that I would uh, look forward to or hope to see sort of actualized would be sort of the creation of sort of, um, and this may not happen until ethic, but the idea of like a bed czar or a bed dashboard to truly track like where the pinch points are, um, and I think that would, that, would, that would be an amazing sort of leap forward in terms of our tracking and planning. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I, would, I would say to, to that point, because I, I, you know, these exist. These individuals exist. It's just a matter of really defining their roles and holding and, you know, teaching them, training them and holding them accountable to that process. And so that's part of the effort. It's, again, revamping and relooking at how we can best leverage our existing resources mm -hmm. in that way. And to Dr. Baden's point, you know, our care management team, you know, has, you know, 25 people. But, you know, I, I come from the philosophy and I've worked in other organizations of the hospitals that have been high performing, that have done great work. And the key here to Dr. Bain's point is really empowering our nurses, making them feel like, you know what, they have a say and they can, no one knows the patient better than they do. I mean, it's, you know, aside from our docs that are providing that care, but those nurses are, are with those patients every single day yeah. and they're caring for them, they understand, they know. And we need to empower them to help drive some of this process because essentially we need to have 900 care managers on the floor, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Not just those 25 that we have. And that's what we need to get to and that's what we're working towards. Um, as, a, as a kind of segue, because we're at time check at 11 minutes to go to, on this meeting, uh, Luis, in the last part of your written narrative, we talked about people and the org chart, 
and, and uh, Dr. Baden was just talking about how our, our, our opportunity with our nurses, if, if the board recalls that the reorg chart includes a CAO slash CNE, which I think would be a very, very important person in this role. Yeah. Can you update us on, on the status of that? Absolutely. So our, our CAO CNE, um, which, and then if you don't mind, remind us about the reorg structure, just to, sure. because we don't have the chart in front of us. Sure. So it, it, our, our, the restructure that we move forward with, uh, we're looking at, at um, you know, focusing and leveraging the skill sets of our nursing team, having a CAO, CNE over all of our acute care sites, mm -hmm. so both uh, all three Alameda, San Leandro, and Highland. This CAO, CNE would be accountable and would be supportive uh, of the day-to-day -day activities, but also nursing practice across our entire system. Mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, and to further complement that, we're going to have site leaders, site administrators, uh, in the form of vice president of patient care services, mm -hmm. one at each site. We already have a vice president of patient care services here at Highland. We are actively recruiting and working to fill that and critical role at Alameda and San Leandro. That's Dr. That is, no, that's Rache Holman. Right. He's a nurse. He's, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so Rache Holman is our vice president of patient care services here at Highland. Uh, we're actively recruiting for that position at San Leandro and Alameda. In the interim, we have two very strong leaders, uh, Rose Dumbledore at San Leandro, and we have uh, Ronica Shelton at Alameda. Uh, they're both, again, very, very seasoned, very qualified. They're doing great work managing the day-to-day -day activities while we're going through the recruitment process. Uh, I've already identified, and my focus has been on really looking at and leveraging our internal talent specifically for the Vice President of Patient Care Services at two community hospitals. We've had great interest and I'm currently going through the process of, you know, working with HR to narrow down that list, identify those top candidates, and begin the interview process, hoping to have that done in the next couple of weeks. The CAO CNE, uh, we have, uh, and we're actively searching, we have an external search. We have not engaged a firm. We, we are just working through our internal executive recruitment teams, leveraging and, and, and you know working through their networks to identify our candidates. Uh, we've received a few, uh, but we want to certainly have a very diverse pool uh, of candidates that uh, that we can review. Uh, I, I certainly want to, I will say that I will take my time uh, with that role. It is a critical role to our operation, and, and I want to make sure that we get the right person. Uh, when we do, then we will certainly go through the interview process where we will engage uh, some of our nursing leaders, uh, some of our physician leaders, and other stakeholders to be part of that selection mm -hmm. process. But I want to make sure that we have some really strong, uh, top-notch candidates that will help us continue with this great work. Is there an ancillary services vice president? Yes, that's John Chapman. Okay. So John Chapman So two of the four are filled. Two of them are filled. And uh, so... Well, they're all filled. Two of them are on an interim capacity. Two of them are permanent. Uh, and the only one that's not filled is the CAOCME, where I am stepping in and I'm providing that direct day-to-day -day support to all of the site leaders at those areas. So we're moving along. It's coming along well. Uh, I'm very optimistic that we're going to have some some great people to look at, and uh, we'll, we'll move this forward. Ron, I request that we keep this board chart as a standing uh, uh, item in every packet. Uh, yep. Trustee Jensen has one. It, we, it's always it's complex, so it's important to keep looking at it. Um, team, we're still a, a few minutes. Any other questions from Mr. Fonseca on his report? No? I'd just like to comment and thank you. And, you know, this was a great presentation, and I think I feel really confident, especially with the creativity and with the, the um, clinical uh, engagement that's going on. You know, I, I, um, we hear the reports from medical staff, and this is 
this has been a challenge that has been addressed in the past for different reasons, including lack of insurance. Now it's being addressed for, you know, for lack of discharge opportunities. But I, it sounds like, especially with the um, Dr. Jamaldeen's with the SNF, um, uh, the SNF discharge opp opportunity or, or, or program that you're talking about. That's good. Right, and with the, um, the that the SNF um, selection. Bed availability program. Those are creative things that we have to keep moving. I, I, I appreciate that, and I, I really learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you for your report, Lisa. Uh, I have one question. Sorry, I'll give credit to, to my colleague, uh, Dr. Kamal, who also had, had a lot to do with this, so I, I, I couldn't do this every single day without him. Trustees, do you already? Trustee, the interview. So, uh, will we be seeing the, the revamp dashboard like you were saying that for some of those like the PSI 90 and things from September onwards or October onwards? What's so, the so status yeah, of that? I, the question relates to remember we, we voted on some uh, true north metrics at the last session. There's, I think there's going to be a little bit of a lag. I haven't spoken with Tanvir okay. on that, but I think that will be going forward. So, sometimes. Yeah, remember this is, this is reflective of year end close fiscal right, year. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Those metrics that we've reviewed. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, Luis, I end every question, every presentation, any comments, concerns, or suggestions with regard to our ability to execute high quality in our system? Nothing more than what we've already discussed. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your report. With that, we close item E. We go to item F, which is calendaring. Uh, our next uh, QPSC is on Thursday, September 27. That is also our return to a full board meeting uh, to follow after that. That's item F. Item G, General Counsel's report. Yeah, the uh, committee met the closed session and considered the credentialing <coughs> reports for each of the medical staffs and approved credentials and privileges uh, for fully qualified practitioners recommended by each of the medical staffs. And they took away with our action. Thank you. That closes item G. Uh, let me uh, amend that. They also the G1. Uh, they, uh, there was one other action item. Uh, they approved the uh, Temporary privileges uh, applications. applications as well, too. So, okay. with that, we close item G. Uh, thank you. Five minutes, gift of time. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I apologize. Next meeting is at San Leandro Hospital. I apologize. I forgot about that.